from John's Gospel, chapter 5. We're reading from verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, Testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does he word dwell in you, dwell in you for you do not believe the one who, whom he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father, Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? 
Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, in the now famous uh, old <coughs> show, Law and Order, uh, there was a memorable sound used uh, throughout that show, uh, a sound that came, became synonymous with the show. Anyone know what that sound is? What is it? Dun dun. There it is. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, it's thought to be uh, the sound of a jail jaw door shutting uh, and locking, or uh, I think it's even better the sound of a judge double hitting a gavel in a, in a courtroom. You know. Uh, And every time I hear uh, that sound, I think of a court scene. Uh, yeah, the reason that I bring this up uh, is because I think this bit in John, particularly the last little bit, feels a little bit like an episode of Law and Order. Uh, a little bit, or at least a bit like a trial, uh, where Jesus starts off in the dock, accused of breaking the law, but then he turns the tables and puts his opponents on trial instead. So that's where we're going today. Uh, to court with Jesus to see firstly that although Jesus is judged as godless uh, secondly he's actually the perfect son of God and so thirdly it's the response to him that judges who loves God and who doesn't so first up Jesus is judged uh, in the story so far we've come off the back of Jesus healing a lame man. Uh, a man who's been lame for 38 years. Jesus tells him to get up, pick up his mat and walk, and he does. Now, at face value, you go, well, that's great, good on you, mate. That's that's brilliant, that's a good thing. But not for a bunch of the, the Jewish leaders, religious leaders at the time, uh, as we read earlier, because he was doing this miracle, this work on the Sabbath, the law says that you, you can't do that. You can't do that on the Sabbath. So, verse 16, we're told... So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, in one way, they're right. Healing is a work. Jesus doesn't deny that. Uh, and you're not meant to work on the Sabbath. Uh, there's this story in the book of Numbers uh, about a dude who's caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath and God tells Moses that he's got to die. So on God's say-so, the whole Israelite community stones him to death for working on the Sabbath. Working on the Sabbath, it's a big deal for God. And so you can understand why then it might be a big deal uh, for the Jewish leaders at the time too. You could say they're just looking out for what God wants. And so anyone who's deliberately working on the Sabbath is flagrantly going against God. And if the way God deals with Sabbath breakers in the past is anything to go by, uh, you can understand why the Jewish leaders might be wanting Jesus' death. And what Jesus goes on to say, well, only inflames the situation. So we read in verse 17, in his defence, Jesus said, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. But for this reason, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's no wonder that the Jews get irate and try all the harder to kill Jesus, he's unashamedly making himself out to be equal with God. That's, that's blasphemous. This kind of talk is scandalous. Uh, years ago, my dad 
uh, was a minister at uh, Baptist Church in Coffs Harbour, and there was a local guy there who struggled with a mental illness. Uh, he'd have delusions of grandeur, uh, and he'd regularly visit my dad down at the office at the, uh, the church building, claiming to be a prophet. And uh, one day, after this guy had come in uh, to dad, saying again, Keith, uh, you need to listen to me, I'm a prophet. Uh, my dad said, well, uh, you know that we're a non-profit organisation. Uh, to which this guy gave a small smile. He uh, obviously got the joke. Dad, Dad could overlook this guy's delusions of grandeur, even joke a little bit uh, with him about it, because he knew him and he knew his struggles and that they were a product of, uh, of an illness, something he was struggling with. He, he could be excused. But Jesus is in his right mind. More than that, he's performing irrefutable miracles and he's drawing a crowd, he's magnetic, people listen to him and follow him and these Jewish leaders, they're looking on, they're looking on at Jesus, this lawbreaker, this blasphemer and coming to the conclusion the only way that this guy can be stopped is he's got to be killed and he must be stopped, judging him a lawbreaker and claiming to be equal with God. Which brings us to our second point. As Jesus goes on defending himself, saying he is equal with God because he's the perfect son of God. Now, you may have picked up uh, all throughout this passage that Jesus refers to himself as the son of God a lot. lot. Uh, In Jewish thinking at the time, though, the title, son of God, was linked to someone being king in the line of David. As God promised King David, a thousand years before Jesus, saying to David this, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. This is the one who will build my house, uh, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And so, if you're a Jew at the time, Hearing Jesus refer to himself as the son, you may have heard him uh, talk of himself as this king, this promised king uh, in the line of David. Except he goes on to say things of himself as the son that are hard to square with what any king in the line of David has done or could do. So verse 19, Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Unlike any other king in the past, Jesus is completely obedient to God. He can only do what he sees his father doing, things even greater than what he's already done. Jesus obediently does all the father wants, which will amazingly, as he says, be doing greater things than he has been doing, like healing this lame man, uh, but amazingly culminate in him dying on a cross and rising from the dead in obedience to God. He's perfect in his obedience. But more than this, he has the power to give life. This is what he says in verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life 
to whom he is pleased to give it. As this perfectly obedient son, Jesus says, he's the one who will raise the dead. That at the uh, the final day, at the end of the age, where God says through the prophet of Daniel, uh, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus says he's the one that'll do this. And the godlike authority that he wields in this to raise the dead is not just from, the, from God, the Father, it's from himself, he says, as the Son, which, which pushes the idea of him, him being this Son of God into a whole new space, a whole new sphere, into that of being the Son of Man, which he refers uh, to himself as in verse 29. We read, 26, sorry, for as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Who's this Son of Man character? Well, Son of Man character uh, is a vision that God gave the prophet Daniel hundreds of years earlier, a vision where Daniel sees this in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, it's after Jesus has risen as his disciples see him ascend into heaven and gets hidden by a cloud, coming in the clouds, that we see this Son of Man vision fulfilled. And it's as Jesus uh, comes into the Father's presence and is given eternal authority, glory and sovereign power, where in Daniel's vision we're told all nations uh, and people of every language worship him. Now the only, God is the only one to be worshipped. And so it seems Jesus is saying he's the son in this divine sense, the son of man, in this divine son of man sense. So verse 22, moreover, he says, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. How does someone not honour the Father? Well, by refusing to worship him as God. And Jesus is saying it's the same for him as the Son. To not honour the Son, it's not to worship him. But every Jew knows that you can only worship God. And so by saying all may honour him just as they honour the Father, it seems Jesus is very much claiming to be God, the Son. And that's shocking. And it leaves us with a a little bit of a dilemma. Uh, I've quoted it before, but it's worth hearing it again. C.S. Lewis is uh, quoted in making this observation. Sorry if that's a bit fine. I'll read what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of, Ga- the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And Lewis couldn't see that Jesus is a lunatic or evil, and so, as unsettling and incredible as it might seem, he accepted, as he must, that Jesus is God. Uh, something that Christians down through the centuries have really wrestled hard over as they've carefully looked at the scriptures and come to the same wonderful conclusion that Jesus is the perfect divine Son of God. God the Son. And as such, he's the one who saves people from God's judgment. As he says in verse 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Uh, Whoever believes the Father sent the Son, sent him ultimately to suffer the judgment of death for the sin of uh, in the place of sinners, which the Son perfectly obeys. Whoever believes this has eternal life. And it's given to them, this life is given to them by Jesus, the perfect divine Son of God. Some groups, like the Mormons and like the Jehovah's Witnesses, say that Jesus was either a, a little G-God, like an angel, or progressed to deity in the spirit world before he was incarnate, in the, came in the flesh. Uh, but these don't square with Jesus' testimony to himself here, do they? As the perfect divine Son of God, equal to the Father, eternal with the Father, God of God. Which brings us to the uh, third point. Because Jesus is the perfect divine Son of God, it's the response to him that judges who loves God and who doesn't, who has eternal life and who doesn't. Which brings us on to uh, point out, it's, which Jesus actually goes on to, to point out, uh, it's like he steps down from the dock here only to put his, his opponents in the hot seat instead as he puts on his judging hat or better as the father puts it on him. As he uh, says in verse 22, the father judges no one, he's entrusted all judgment to the son. Which is kind of uh, weird because Jesus later on will say, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. So how then has all judgment been entrusted to the Son? Well, it seems people are judged by their own response to God's revelation of Jesus, which Jesus highlights for the Jews as he marshals a bunch of witnesses from God in his favour, from John the Baptist Uh, The prophet they all knew and enjoyed, at least for a bit, that he mentions in verse 33, to the very works that they saw Jesus doing, healing and uh, and all the other incredible signs uh, that he mentions from verse 36, to the scriptures themselves uh, in verse 39. Jesus says, these days all testify to him being from God, to him being the way to eternal life. But the Jews, they refuse to accept these testimonies to him. 
And it's in this, in their refusal of these witnesses, that we see how they're judged. That they don't see Jesus for who he is, that's their judgment. That they don't see God in Jesus is their judgment. That they don't see God's salvation, <laughs> sorry, that they don't see God's salvation and eternal life in Jesus, that's their judgment. And that they see these elsewhere, this salvation, is further judgment on them. That they see this salvation in other places and in other people. As Jesus goes on to say in verse 43. I've come in my Father's name, you don't accept me. But if someone else comes, in his own name, you accept them. Not only don't they accept Jesus, they're happy to accept other pretend saviors, other ways to life with God, which for the Jews then may have been specific people at the time that rose up claiming to be someone important, or it may have been the law of Moses in the scriptures itself, because it seems that some of the Jews are setting their hopes on this. As Jesus notes in verse 45, they set their hopes on the law of Moses, on keeping the rules, keeping the Sabbath, being a good Jew, they look to this as their functional saviour, as the way to get life with God. But Jesus bursts their bubble. As he says from verse 46, if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses and keeping God's law, it's not an end in itself, Jesus is saying, it's appointed to him, to himself. And so for the Jews not to come to Jesus is to show that they don't actually believe Moses, and in turn it shows where their hearts are at, that they don't really love God either, as Jesus says in verse 42. I know you. I know that you don't have the love of God in your hearts. For all their blustering about God's ways and claims to be upholding what God wants, for all their efforts to secure a life with God, By rejecting these divine witnesses, these testimonies to Jesus and embracing other pretend saviours or their own efforts uh, to get God's love, they're not just rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God's love for them in him, they're rejecting God himself, the God they claim to love. It's interesting that uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, the well-known secular professor of uh, psychology and ethicist, uh, in a recent interview, he, he talked about Christ from a psychological perspective. And after considering the various myths or stories of a dying and rising God in various cultures at various times, he talks of how we have a, a narrative sense of the world, a story through which we read the objective world around us. And for him, that's, the, that's been the sense of morality, that the world, uh, that's the world that tells us how to act And he says, that's real. We treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world, but we treat that like it's real. And for him, this this narrative or moral world, this sense of morality and the objective world, he sees them touch in the person of Jesus, in Christ. Because Christ is not just the principle of morality for him, he he concedes that he's he's a historical person. And Jordan confesses, upon arriving at this conclusion, I don't know what to make 
of that. Partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. Perhaps because it would mean having to believe the other things Jesus claims. Things that concern more than just how we act in the world, but about the God to whom we're all accountable to for our actions and what it means to know and to love this God. I don't think it would be unfair to suggest that in Jordan's sense of morality, God's testifying to Jesus. And like with the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, like it is with anyone, it's the response to Jesus and God's testimony to him in the world, but but mostly in the scriptures, in the Bible, that judges whether we're on the right path or not, that judges whether we love God or not. So, we've seen, although at first Jesus is judged as godless because he's the perfect divine son of God, it's the response to him that judges who loves God and who doesn't, who gets eternal life and who doesn't. And that's still the case now. If you claim to love God or to be pursuing what is right and good and true in the world and you don't believe in Jesus then you're dishonouring God and you're setting yourself up for everlasting tragedy. Please, see Jesus for who he is, the perfect divine son of God who's loved you to death and beyond. Put your faith in him and he'll judge you worthy of eternal life. And for those of us who already believe in Jesus, who've crossed over from death to life, take heart. You do love God, even though uh, it might not feel like that sometimes. If you accept Jesus is the perfect divine son of God, then the love of God is in your heart. So let's guard that love. Let's fan that love into flames. Maybe by examining our lives, even now to see what's helping us grow in our faith in Jesus and what's not. Because it may be, as the religious people of our day, that like those back in Jesus' day, that we might be tempted to find our love for God in something other than Jesus. And we might even slip into swapping out the the true saviour for pretend and functional ones. Uh, For instance, it's worth checking our hearts and asking ourselves if we're equating a healthy spiritual life with doing our religious duty or with knowing Jesus more and more. Do we read the scriptures to tick a box or to know Jesus more? Do we bother reading the scriptures at all to know Jesus more? Are we more at odds uh, with someone here at church, maybe, over matters of conscience than united with them over the person and work of Jesus? Do we treasure the way, the things, that, uh, the way things are done around here more than loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in their messy lives? Do we land on discussing the weather or our latest purchase more than mining the scriptures together to know Jesus more? Uh, do we come to church to be served or to worship Jesus? 
Do we think about growth groups as just another night out or time out in our busy week or as a place to see Jesus at work in the lives of others and our own? As we think on these things, let's let's remember Jesus, the perfect divine son who's loved us to death and beyond and taken God's judgment away from us and given us eternal life and let him work on all those other areas in our life, the habits, the traditions, the distractions, the pleasures, the preoccupations, the attitudes, so that we might see them serving us growing to know Jesus more, the perfect divine son of God. And so move us then to love God more and more in and through him. So, as a uh, a start to the rest of our lives on that path, I thought we'd do something together now. I thought it'd be good to say the Nicene Creed together. The Nicene Creed is an ancient summary of the Bible's testimony to, to who God is, with a particular focus on Jesus. So if you'd like to, I join with you now in affirming what we believe uh, in saying this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. Sorry. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to the come. Amen.